Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of gun violence, sexual assault, and suicide that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. In a small motel room in Corpus Christi, Texas, 34-year-old Yolanda Salivar found herself on the brink of a life-changing decision. Everything up to this moment had been a blur. Threats, accusations, desperate pleas. But now, Yolanda could take action. She could put an end to the pain and the anger. Her finger squeezed the trigger. Before she knew it, a bullet had struck her friend, 23-year-old Selena Quintanilla Perez, in the back. The singer staggered out of the door. She fled toward the lobby, shouting for help. Yolanda stepped forward to help her, or at least she tried to, but she was frozen in place, taking in the ghastly scene before her. Selena stumbling across the motel grounds, blood splattered on the wall next to the door. Oh God, what had she done? Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Female Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. Last week, we explored how Yolanda grew attached to Tejano star, Selena, first as her fan club president and later as her personal assistant and confidant. Then we discussed how Yolanda's intense devotion to Selena turned into a dangerous possessiveness. This week, we'll cover Selena's final moments and Yolanda's immediate regret. Then we'll detail Yolanda's attempt to avoid arrest and her sensational murder trial. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. In the early afternoon on March 31, 1995, two women argued in room 158 at the Corpus Christi Days Inn Motel. Not long ago, they'd been close friends, but now the friendship had shattered. 
23-year-old Tejano superstar Selena Quintanilla Perez, beautiful, talented, and loved by millions, stood near the door. Across from her, with a gun held to her head, was her former business advisor, 34-year-old Yolanda Saldivar, possessive, desperate, and utterly alone in her life. Yolanda stood accused of embezzling the singer's money. It was Selena's father, Abraham Quintanilla, who'd told Selena that her friend and business advisor was stealing from her. Selena's trust in Yolanda was shattered. She'd agreed to meet with her only to get back the financial records Yolanda had taken. Then it was Selena's plan to be done with Yolanda once and for all. But in Yolanda's eyes, she was the one betrayed. She swore that the theft had been made up by Abraham, who she believed wanted to create a rift between her and Selena. She said she would never hurt the singer, if only Selena could see that. But Selena seemed to have reached a point of no return. No matter what Yolanda did or said to explain herself, the singer could not be swayed. She had made up her mind about her former assistant, and she wanted nothing more to do with her. Desperate, Yolanda raised the gun she was holding to her own head. She threatened to kill herself. If she couldn't make Selena take her back, then she would leave Selena on her own terms by suicide. Before we continue with Yolanda's psychology, I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. When Yolanda put her gun to her own head, she committed a role reversal. According to forensic psychologist Dr. Reed Malloy, often when someone feels the threat of abandonment, the only way they can understand and accept it is to be the one to actually sever ties. Role reversals are common in romantic relationships, but they also occur in close friendships like the one Yolanda and Selena initially shared. When the situation became so dire that Yolanda realized there was no hope of reconciliation, she assumed the role of the abandoner. She would not allow Selena to leave. She would leave her instead. What happened next has been debated for 25 years. In Yolanda's version of events, she informed Selena that she was done working for her, but Selena wouldn't hear of it. She begged her to stay and continue working on the deal for the new boutique in Mexico. Yolanda refused. She insisted Selena leave right then and there, otherwise she would shoot herself. At this point, Selena went to close the door so they could talk, but Yolanda gestured for her to leave it open. And that's when the gun went off. Those who don't believe Yolanda's story think that the day's events were much more straightforward. As Selena turned to leave Yolanda behind forever, the older woman simply raised the gun and pulled the trigger. But no one except Yolanda and Selena knows exactly what happened. What we do know is that at 11.48 a.m., 34-year-old Yolanda Saldivar shot 23-year-old Selena Quintanilla Perez in the back. The bullet ripped through Selena's chest, splattering blood all over the motel room wall. For one horrifying moment, Yolanda couldn't believe what she had done. She watched as Selena ran away, stumbling across the grounds and shouting for help. Yolanda stepped out into the hallway with the gun still in her hand. 
But despite years of nursing experience, Yolanda made no move to help her friend. Instead, she calmly returned to the motel room. As Yolanda collected her belongings, Selena made it to the motel lobby. She crashed into the door, struggling to get it open. The adrenaline helped her along, but the pain was unbearable and only getting worse. She pushed her way inside. As soon as she was within the safety of the lobby, she collapsed to the ground. Shauna Vela, the motel receptionist, recognized Selena right away. Then she registered the blood soaking through Selena's clothes. Shauna panicked and rushed to the singer's side, just as Selena managed to gasp, Yolanda. 158. Then Selena passed out. Her clenched fist unfurled, and out fell the Fabergé egg ring, the one Yolanda had given to Selena four months earlier. In the chaos of the last few minutes, Selena had somehow managed to slip it off, as if she couldn't bear to keep it on a second longer. The receptionist frantically called 911 while scanning the motel's records for room 158. When she found who the room was registered to, she told the operator that it was Yolanda Saldivar who had shot Selena. Two minutes later, an ambulance arrived on the scene. It rushed Selena to Corpus Christi Memorial Hospital. Meanwhile, Yolanda walked out of the room, the gun still firmly in her grasp, and headed for the parking lot. Just as she reached her pickup truck, she saw the ambulance come to a stop in front of the motel. And the police were right behind it. The cops pulled into the motel parking lot, blocking off the exits. Yolanda was stuck. Trapped in her car, she struggled to comprehend what she had just done. Selena was her best friend, her whole world, and now she'd killed her. In Yolanda's mind, there was no reason to live anymore. She stared at the gun in her hand, imagined bringing it to her temple once more, and wondered how hard it would be to pull the trigger. She was so caught up in her thoughts that she didn't notice a police officer approaching her car. When she looked up and saw the officer, she panicked. She didn't know if he was going to arrest her or kill her. To buy herself time, Yolanda put the gun to her head. At least this way, her fate would be in her control. The cop backed away, hands in the air. No one wanted Yolanda dead. They wanted to bring her in. Corpus Christi police set up a perimeter a safe distance from Yolanda's truck. Should anything happen, they could move in an instant. But lead officer Larry Young didn't want to spook the 34-year-old woman and unintentionally cause her to die by suicide. Instead, he called her on her cell phone to try to talk to her. Yolanda answered in hysterics, screaming that she didn't want to live anymore and that she was going to kill herself. Officer Young tried to calm Yolanda down, employing every negotiation tactic he knew. He reminded her of her family and how devastated they would be if she were gone. He tried to appeal to her religious side. He spoke to her affectionately, as a father might to a daughter. But each attempt only caused more distress. Yolanda was in shock over what she had done. Young tried to convince her that there was still an opportunity for redemption, 
But she didn't believe him. She wanted to talk to her family, to say goodbye and ask for forgiveness. But to Young, that sounded an awful lot like Yolanda was getting ready to give up. So instead, he made her a deal. If she turned herself in, he would make sure she could see her family. But Yolanda refused to get out of the car. The negotiations went back and forth for hours. As the sun began to set on Corpus Christi, tensions mounted. The officers on the ground knew that the longer Yolanda remained in the truck, the more likely she was to die by suicide. They needed to talk her off the ledge now. In their desperation, Officer Young and his second-in-command, Officer Valencia, made a serious misstep. They asked Yolanda to explain what had happened in room 158. She told them that the gun was to kill herself, not Selena. She said that the firearm had gone off when she had pointed at Selena to leave the door alone. After she told her version of events, Officer Valencia tried to comfort her. He said, it sounds to me like there was an accident. An accident. She had never used the word accident before. All she'd said was that she hadn't meant to hurt Selena. It was a small distinction, but at that moment, Yolanda latched on to the word. In her mind, she could distance herself from the guilt. And even more to the point, she now had a potential legal defense. Up next, Yolanda turns herself in. Hi, listeners. I'm so excited to introduce you to the newest Spotify original from Parcast called Blind Dating. Hosted by YouTuber Tara Michelle, Blind Dating is a fun twist on a classic setup. Strangers are introduced, conversation commences, and sparks either fly or fizzle. But here's the catch. Our hopeful singles have to choose their match before ever seeing their face. And once they've picked their potential date, we turn the cameras on, and then it's either butterflies or goodbyes. Blind Dating airs weekly with new episodes every Wednesday. You can find and follow Blind Dating free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And now back to the story. On March 31, 1995, just a few hours before the shooting at the Days Inn Motel, 23-year-old Selena brought her friend and business advisor, 34-year-old Yolanda Saldivar, to the hospital. Yolanda had told Selena that she'd been sexually assaulted, and now Selena wanted her to be examined. At the hospital, it became apparent that Yolanda had made up the story. But a nurse noticed that Yolanda barely spoke and avoided making eye contact. These were both signs of possible depression, although not enough for the nurse to make a diagnosis. As a result, the nurse sent Yolanda on her way. She had no way of knowing how bad things would get. Back at the Days Inn Motel, the two women argued. And when Selena turned to leave, Yolanda shot her in the back. As Selena ran to the lobby for help, Yolanda retreated to her car, intending to flee. But when police surrounded the parking lot, Yolanda was trapped. That's when she put the gun to her own head. Homicide suicides are rare, but when they occur, depression is often one of the root causes. 
According to Dr. Scott Eliason, an intense breakup or separation can trigger depression. While Yolanda was not romantically involved with Selena, their lives were so entwined that the end of their friendship probably still felt like a breakup, and it was likely intense enough not only to cause depression, but possibly suicidal thoughts. These thoughts could have been the catalyst for Selena's murder. According to research done by Dr. Roger Bayard, murder-suicide may merely be an extension of a suicidal act. And too often, those who are close to the perpetrator are the ones who go down with them. Many believe that Yolanda was a cold-blooded assassin who walked into that motel room with the goal of killing Selena. But Selena's death may actually have been a tragic byproduct of Yolanda's wish to kill herself. Trapped in her car, Yolanda's suicidal urges fully revealed themselves. Over and over, she threatened to kill herself while police tried to convince her to surrender. The standoff continued as day turned into night. Eventually, Yolanda began to rethink taking her own life. That was in large part due to Officer Young, who spoke with Yolanda patiently and genuinely. He knew that her threats weren't empty. At any moment, it could all go sideways. Still, it seemed that he was about to get her to surrender. But then, Yolanda's cell phone began to pick up interference from Young's radio. She could hear voices. At first, they were hard to understand. But soon, Yolanda realized she was listening to a news broadcast. She tensed, frozen in place, as a radio host announced Selena's death. Yolanda cried out as she heard the news. Up until this point, she'd held on to the belief that Selena was okay. She'd recover from the gunshot. And Yolanda could see the singer after this was all over. She'd convinced herself that not only was Selena fine, but that the two might still be able to reconcile. But now, that hope was destroyed. Yolanda screamed at Officer Young. She accused him of deliberately hiding Selena's death from her. He assured her that he had no idea Selena had died, and he cautioned her against believing everything she heard on the radio. He thought he might be able to convince her that it was just a rumor, but in her heart, Yolanda knew what she heard was true. It was all over. Selena was gone. The weight of it all crashed down on Yolanda. She told Officer Young, I want to die after what I've done to my best friend. I have lost the only friend I ever had in my entire life. Still, even as Yolanda slowly accepted that she had killed Selena, she told police that Selena's father was to blame. She insisted that he had threatened her, that Selena had put Yolanda up in the motel to protect her from him that by trying to drive a wedge between the two of them, this whole mess was his fault. It was a story that didn't make much sense, but Officer Young let Yolanda talk until she got it all out. Around 9 p.m., after a grueling nine-hour standoff, Officer Larry Young managed to convince Yolanda to surrender. All she had to do was leave the gun and step out of the car. Press had gathered near the scene, but Young promised he would meet her with a jacket and shield her face from the cameras. Yolanda agreed. The officers sighed with relief. But when she stepped out of the car, 
Yolanda realized she no longer had contact with Officer Young. Without his soothing voice in her ear, she panicked and fled back to the truck. It took another half hour of coaxing and assuring Yolanda that everything was all right before she agreed to leave the car once more. Finally, at 9.30 p.m. on March 31, 1995, almost 10 hours after the shooting, Yolanda stepped out of her pickup truck and surrendered. Police officers immediately swarmed her. Officer Young shielded her face with his jacket, just as he had promised, as he escorted her to a waiting cop car. That night at the Corpus Christi police station, a detective interrogated Yolanda. He asked Yolanda question after question. She asked for a lawyer, but none was given to her. On top of that, the detective refused her food, water, and the use of a restroom. It had been over 11 hours since the beginning of the standoff, and Yolanda was starving and exhausted. But the detective pushed on. Finally, Yolanda told the officer that she had deliberately shot Selena as the singer had left the room. Then she signed a written confession, swearing to the truth of her statements. After that, Yolanda was allowed to see her father. She embraced him, and his presence comforted her for a few minutes. Then the guards returned and brought her to her jail cell. The police had exactly what they wanted, an admission of guilt. For the moment, the case seemed to be over. But things were just getting started. Yolanda retained Douglas Tinker as her lawyer. Tinker was known for winning cases that seemed like lost causes. He even had a saying, if Tinker can't get you out of jail, you're probably guilty. He was determined to get Yolanda acquitted, but her case was no walk in the park. She had just about everything stacked against her, a weapon, a motive, witnesses, and a signed confession. On top of that, the opposing counsel, District Attorney Carlos Valdez, had both a personal and professional stake in seeing Yolanda sent to prison for life. He was a neighbor of the Quintanillas, and it was an election year. If he wanted to keep his job, he would have to deliver justice for Selena. He wasn't going to go easy on her killer. Then there was the mounting pressure from Selena's fans. They wanted Yolanda to receive the maximum punishment. Some even demanded a death sentence, despite the fact that it wasn't applicable in the case. In Texas, a double felony had to be committed to warrant the death penalty. The letter of the law didn't seem to matter, though. Texans were angry, and they wanted Yolanda to pay the ultimate price for what she'd done. The public clamored for justice for five months straight, until finally, in August 1995, Yolanda's preliminary hearing began. The prosecution laid out their argument first. In their version of events, Yolanda had been so enraged by the accusation of embezzlement that she had set out to murder Selena. According to their theory, the events of March 31st were the result of a premeditated revenge plot. Then the defense spoke. 
Most people assumed that Tinker would prove Yolanda to be insane at the time of the crime. It was the only logical defense for someone who had signed a sworn confession. But Yolanda's attorney shocked everyone. He promised to prove that the shooting had been an accident. However, Yolanda's signed confession did pose a serious problem. In the document, she admitted to shooting Selena, and there was absolutely no mention of it being an accident. So Tinker made a motion to suppress the confession on grounds that it was obtained illegally. This wasn't a big leap. After all, no lawyer had been present during Yolanda's questioning, despite her request for one. And there was a case to be made that she'd been unduly pressured, with authorities restricting her access to food, water, and the bathroom until she signed the confession. Plus, the detective's notes from the interrogation no longer existed. He claimed he'd thrown them away after Yolanda gave her confession, and that this was standard procedure. But his integrity was called into question when Tinker brought another officer to testify against him. The officer said he had heard Yolanda say it was an accident, but that the detective had chosen to omit it from the final confession because he simply didn't believe her. Tinker's next pretrial motion was for a change of venue. He argued that there was no way they'd get an impartial jury in Selena's hometown of Corpus Christi. Few people disagreed. More than two-thirds of the city thought it would be impossible for Yolanda to have a fair trial there. Most citizens had already come to their own conclusion on the case, that Yolanda was guilty. In the end, the court granted Tinker only the change of venue. The trial would be moved to Houston, but her confession would stand as evidence. Yolanda was devastated. It didn't matter if she had an impartial jury or not. If the signed confession stood, she doubted anyone would believe her side of the story. Up next, Yolanda's fate is put into the jurors' hands. After shooting Selena Quintanilla Perez, 34-year-old Yolanda Saldivar tried to escape, only to be trapped in the parking lot by police. For nine hours, she sat in her pickup truck and threatened to shoot herself. Authorities managed to negotiate her surrender, after which she confessed to deliberately gunning Selena down. But by the time Yolanda got to her first hearing, her story had changed. She claimed it was an accident, and her defense attorney argued her confession should be thrown out. Unfortunately for Yolanda, the judge didn't agree. Her signed confession would be admitted as evidence. For six months, she waited in the Corpus Christi jail until her trial began. During that time, her depression set in even deeper. She rarely touched meals, and she lost more than 50 pounds. At one point, she made up a lie about having breast cancer. Just like with Selena, she wanted her family and the public to feel sorry for her. But when it became clear that her cancer story just wasn't true, she appeared manipulative and controlling. This only played right into the prosecution's hands, and they were out to put her behind bars for life. 
On October 9, 1995, jury selection began in Houston. The defense ran through a series of questions to try to weed out Selena fans from the pool of potential jurors. Yolanda's attorney, Douglas Tinker, also wanted to avoid anyone who had blind faith in the police or too much experience with guns. To really test the jurors, Tinker had them stand up and look Yolanda in the eye. She would meet each of their gazes. Then he asked them to swear that they believed Yolanda was innocent until proven guilty. Most of them couldn't do it. Tinker sent them away. When the defense and prosecution agreed on 12 jurors, the trial was ready to begin. On October 11, 1995, the scene at the Houston courthouse was pandemonium. People fought each other for a seat inside the courtroom. Only 35 tickets were allotted to the public per day. But that didn't stop Selena fans from lining the streets. They chanted demands for Yolanda to receive the maximum punishment. And in the event she was found innocent, local gangs threatened to kill her the second she left the courthouse. Inside, Yolanda sweated in a red jacket. Her team had tried to spruce her up and make her look respectable. They wanted the jury to see her in a different light, or at least one different from her mugshot. But Yolanda worried it would all be for nothing. When it was time for Yolanda to enter her plea, the courtroom quieted down. Everyone knew what she planned on saying, but they needed to hear it to believe it. Sure enough, the now 35-year-old Yolanda stood up behind the defense table and swore not guilty. Over the next two and a half weeks, the prosecution and the defense elaborated on the arguments they'd presented six months earlier. Everyone from the Days Inn motel staff to Abraham Quintanilla took the stand. The only notable exception was Yolanda herself. Instead, the defense relied on tapes from the police negotiation with Yolanda while she was holed up in her car. They played the last five hours of the standoff, during which Yolanda told the police her side of the story. Conveniently, that meant the prosecution couldn't cross-examine her. But in the end, it wasn't necessary. On October 23rd, less than three hours after the final closing remarks of the hearing, the jury reached a decision. As she waited for everyone to return to the courtroom for the verdict to be read, 35-year-old Yolanda hyperventilated. The thought of what might happen within the next few minutes was just too much for her. But the judge pressed on and read the verdict. The jury had found Yolanda guilty of first-degree murder. Yolanda folded in on herself, sobbing, Behind her, her parents broke down and cried with their daughter. This was in stark contrast to the Quintanilla family, who barely showed any emotion as they left through a side door. Outside in the streets, the crowd that had gathered erupted in cheers. Journalist Maria Arraras described the scene People had come from all parts of the city, 
flooding the area around the courthouse and traffic came to a standstill as a spontaneous street festival suddenly came to life. People danced to Selena's music as it exploded from huge boomboxes. Even though Yolanda had been found guilty, the trial wasn't entirely over. There was still the sentencing. Yolanda hoped that her punishment wouldn't be extreme. There was a chance she would receive only conditional probation, but she could hear the celebrations outside. She knew the people wanted justice for Selena, and she had a sinking feeling. The next day, 35-year-old Yolanda was brought back to the courtroom. Once more, her life was in the jury's hands. The defense tried to paint a picture of Yolanda as someone who deserved leniency. They called character witnesses to the stand, who testified to her being a religious, honest, and hardworking woman. They even called Yolanda's father, Frank Saldivar. He gave an impassioned plea for his daughter's life, asking the jury to recognize that two lives, Selena's and Yolanda's, had been lost from this tragic event. Finally, Tinker gave his closing argument. Justice, he said, was not meant to be an eye for an eye. He argued that Yolanda had been punished enough and that society would continue to ostracize her for the rest of her life. She didn't need to be penalized with a harsh prison sentence as well. As the jury deliberated, both sides seemed to feel that they had won. Yolanda appeared in good spirits. She even signed autographs for the courtroom spectators. Meanwhile, the Quintanillas went to greet the crowd outside, thanking them for their support. But as the afternoon wore on, the weight of the situation hung heavy over everyone. They had expected a quick verdict like the trial, but instead the jury took the night to continue their discussions and then continued into the morning. Finally, at 2.30 p.m. on October 25, 1995, the jurors returned. The courtroom was silent, the tension palpable, as the judge looked over the verdict. Then he read out for all to hear, life in prison. Yolanda burst into tears. Her family rushed to comfort her, but there was little to be done. Yolanda's fate was set. After only a few minutes, she was handcuffed, escorted out of the courtroom, and brought to county jail. Less than two weeks after being behind bars, Yolanda agreed to her first interview. She wanted to tell her side of the story. On November 2, 1995, journalist Maria Arraras met Yolanda at the county jail. Yolanda wore the same red jacket she'd sported at her trial. Dressing in civilian clothes was part of her agreement to the interview. She didn't want to be seen in her prison uniform. And Arraras, who was determined to snag the exclusive story, agreed to the condition. The interview started as one would expect. Arraras questioned Yolanda about the events of March 31st and her relationship with Selena. But then, Yolanda mentioned something that had never been brought up before. She professed that she was protecting a deep secret of Selena's, which had been the catalyst for the events of that fateful day in room 158. 
According to Yolanda, this was a secret so serious that she was willing to take it to the grave, even if it meant she had to remain in prison to keep it safe. She was only mentioning it now because Selena had come to her in a dream, telling her to reveal all. But Yolanda claimed that she couldn't tell anyone because of her ongoing appeals. One day, when she was free, she would tell the true story. When she divulged the details, it would exonerate her and explain everything. It would also reveal the identity of the person actually responsible for Selena's death. According to forensic psychologist Dr. Reed Malloy, this was Yolanda's way of maintaining a special relationship with Selena. By saying they shared a secret, she was attempting to solidify the fantasy that the two shared an unbreakable bond, even after the singer's death. It was one final ploy by Yolanda to stay in Selena's life. In 2025, Yolanda will be eligible for her first parole opportunity. She's always maintained that what happened on March 31, 1995, was an accident. She loved Selena, still loves her, she says. According to Yolanda, she never would have done anything to intentionally hurt her. She has never revealed the secret. Journalist Maria Arraras believes this is Yolanda's way to deny herself her role in the death of the singer and that allows her to live with the burden of being a murderer. To this day, when people talk of Selena, Yolanda's name often comes up. It's a story that shocked the world, and it's hard not to mention one without the other. But that's just the way Yolanda wanted it. She and Selena are inextricably linked forever. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Yolanda Saldivar, amongst the many sources we used, we found Selena's Secret by Maria Celeste Arraras extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Female Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Female Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Mike Ramos, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Alex Burns, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Remember to follow Blind Dating for a Dash of Romance and Rejection. YouTuber Tara Michelle hosts, and she's thrilled to help hopeful singles meet their match once they've survived the hot seat. Follow Blind Dating free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>